1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We, uh, we glanced, really, at these verses last week, um, but we're returning to them ag- uh, again this week for a closer look. And uh, one of the reasons we're doing that is I think we find in these verses a vital pastoral counsel for all Christians who are seeking to, yet struggling to live a life of holiness. I think we'll find this passage immensely helpful for living the Christian life. We all know, don't we, as Christians, that we're called to a life of holiness. And yet, the call to a life of holiness and actually living out that call are two very different things, aren't they? Uh, We are caught in what one of my former pastors called the war of a lifetime, or what uh, our Westminster Confession of Faith calls a continual and irreconcilable war. And we know it, don't we? If we're Christians, we, we feel it each and every day. We, we love the Lord, and yet at times we love our sin. We want to please the Lord, and yet at times we find ourselves indulging our sin. We find ourselves saying with the Apostle Paul, the good that I want to do, I do not do. And the words of Paul in Galatians resonate with us, don't they? That there is this conflict between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. And I think that conflict really describes the Corinthian Christians. They were struggling to shake off the old patterns of sin by which they lived before they were brought into union with Jesus Christ. And Paul, as we've seen, has already had to address the issue of pride that was resulting in division and strife and infighting in the church of Corinth in chapters 1 through 4. We've seen Paul have to address the issue of sexual sin of one of its church members in in Corinth. And along with that, a failure on the part of the church to be the church and confronting that wayward church member for his good, the good of his soul, as well as the good of the church and the glory of God. Uh, We've seen Paul have to address the all-too-common issue in the Roman culture of the day of individuals taking one another to civil court over trivial matters in order to defraud and in order to climb the social ladder, and believers doing that against unbelievers. And we're going to see, Lord willing, uh, next time in the second part of chapter 6, believers in the church of Corinth still uniting themselves with temple prostitutes, prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite. The Corinthian church, you see, was rife with ungodliness, immorality, and worldliness. And so Paul, Paul's writing, and he wants to help the, the Corinthian Christians in this continual and irreconcilable war. He wants to arm them for the fight and equip them to be who they really are now that they are in Christ. And if you look at the passage, it really breaks down nicely into two words. Uh, Paul has, on the one hand, a word of warning that we need to hear and that we need to heed in verses 9 and 10. And then he speaks a word of, uh, of grace, a reminder of grace in verse 11. So a word of warning and a word of grace. That's what we're going to be thinking about today. But first, let's go ahead and read our passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is the living and active 
word of God. So let's hear it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let's hear first of all this word of warning that Paul gives first. It's, it's there in verses 9 and 10. However, one of the great temptations that we might uh, have to deal with when we come to this passage is to immediately give all of our attention to the list of sins that Paul mentions that exclude one from the kingdom of God and just jump right over or pass over the nature of the problem itself in Corinth. And we talked about the problem last time in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and noticed the repeated question in verses 1 through 11 that actually runs through the entirety of this chapter, Paul asking the question, do you not know? Do you not know? He asks the question in one form or another in verse 2, then in verse 3, verse 9, verse 16, and again finally in verse 19. And so over and over and over again in this passage, Paul is asking them, Do you not know? They ought to have known certain truths that Paul considered foundational and fundamental and essential to the Christian faith and the Christian life. But they seem somehow to have forgotten them, to be ignorant of them, to have dismissed them or set them aside. They were guilty of, today we'll call it, theological forgetfulness. And in verse 9, their their theological forgetfulness seems to have led them to the minimization of the sinfulness of sin and the absolute necessity of holiness in the Christian life. The minimization of the sinfulness of sin and the absolute necessity of holiness in the Christian life. And so Paul asks them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so notice, first of all, what happens when theological forgetfulness sets in and leads us to neglect foundational truths like these ones. See what happens? Theological forgetfulness creates a vacuum which inevitably must be filled. And if it's not filled by gospel truth, gospel fundamentals, then the danger is it will instead be filled with lies and error and deception. And so Paul says in verse 9, do not be deceived. He knows that if they forget the gospel truths that they have been taught and trained in, that the great danger is that they will wind up being deceived. 
Do not be deceived. You see, there are stages that we can observe in the Corinthian Christians' moral failure. And I think we need to take note of them so that we can avoid them ourselves. First of all, they ignore or they set aside. In some way, they forget, neglect these basic truths. And then they, they fall prey to this theological forgetfulness. But then into that theological vacuum in their thinking crept deadly, dangerous deceptions. See, since they didn't listen to the truth, they began to listen to lies, to falsehoods. They began to adjust their convictions to accommodate their preferences for sin. See, they they loved their sin, their lifestyle of sin, their way of life. And since the call to radical holiness no longer seemed to matter all that much to them, well, then maybe a different set of convictions could be embraced that would be more accommodating to their sin. You see, there is on the one hand what our culture and our world says is normal and perhaps even good and virtuous, And there is, on the other hand, the radical call to holiness that we have in Christ Jesus. And and sometimes what Christians find themselves doing, confessing Christians is saying, you know, what God requires of me, what God calls me to, it's just, it's so inconvenient. It's so hard. It, it, It asks for so much. And when that way of thinking starts to set in and take hold of us, what can happen is we can start to make adjustments to our convictions, our beliefs, our doctrine, to make room for our morality. We can think of stories maybe of people we know, people in our lives who confessed Christ. Maybe people that we sat alongside of in church, people we went to youth group with, People we studied the Bible with and and prayed with. But perhaps at some point in their life, it it was as though it became evident to you that their confession on the one hand didn't drive with how they lived. How they were conducting themselves. And then that matured to the point where you realized it's as though they're living a double life. On the one hand, they confess these set of truths, and then on the other hand, they're living this way until the point where that individual changed what it is that they confessed to match up with what it was that they were doing. You see, they made their beliefs conform to what they wanted, what they already desired to uh, to be true, to be good and right. And I think we have to be aware of that danger. It is what the Corinthians were in danger of possibly doing. Do not be deceived. Don't lie to yourselves, Paul is saying. In love, he's giving them this warning. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But you see, but, but sexual promiscuity, uh, adultery, homosexuality, 
theft, swindling, defrauding, we saw last time. All of it was just so common in, in the Corinthian culture. All of it was just so normal. It, is, it was the way that people lived. And so you can imagine the Corinthians reasoning this way. I mean, come on, Paul. Maybe, maybe that works in Palestine. Maybe that works in your nice traditional conservative setting, but not here. Not in, not in Corinth. Not in a progressive place like this. I mean, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, all forms of adultery and the like. They, they might be frowned upon where you come from, but here in our city, it's just part of the way of life. So Paul, you couldn't, you couldn't possibly be meaning to tell us that we can no longer sleep around. You couldn't possibly be telling us that it's no longer okay to defraud others in order to get ahead. You couldn't possibly be telling us that we've got to give up our drunken parties and change our conduct. You're not saying that. But you see, that's exactly what Paul is saying. The gospel calls them to. But the Corinthians, you see, accommodations were made. Theology was forgotten, neglected. Sin was overlooked. And then what happens? Sin overlooked becomes sin tolerated. And sin tolerated becomes sin indulged in. And eventually sin indulged in becomes sin approved of. To the point where these things are no longer sin. In fact, the real sinner here is the Apostle Paul. So backwards. So narrow. uh, So judgmental. So... Um, out of touch with the way things are. And when we put it in, that, in those kind of terms, that sounds very, very familiar, doesn't it? And see, Paul wants us to understand that no matter how plausible the world's arguments against what God calls sin, he wants us to understand that the consequences of being deceived and embracing sin as a way of life, consequences are eternal Uh, He's saying here that don't be deceived. Those who embrace sin as a way of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Eternity really is at stake, Paul is saying. Now let me just mention a couple of things here about the list of sins that Paul brings up. First of all, notice in verse 9, amongst the list of sexual sins... It almost seems out of place. He drops idolatry in. Catch that? It it seems kind of odd to insert when you're talking about sexual sin, doesn't it? Well, it seems odd only until you understand that dominating the religious life of Corinth were the temples of Apollos and Aphrodite. And their homosexual sex and temple prostitution were fundamental and a key part of their worship practices. It was a normal part of worship in Corinth to engage in this kind of sexual sin. And many of these Corinthian Christians are coming out of those practices. They are those who who used to go to the temples of Apollos and Aphrodite and and engage in these activities. And so Paul is helping them understand it really is quite literally a form of idolatry, this sexual activity. 
But all I want to say in light of that is, don't you think that actually in our current cultural moment, that the link that Paul makes here between idolatry and sexual sin, it speaks with particular relevance, doesn't it? After all, the politics of sexual identity today, it dominates the news. It's one of the key topics in election debates these days. Sex is entertainment on our television screens. Um, It's one of the key strategies for advertisements. Pornography is an epidemic that's becoming increasingly normalized. And we're seeing more and more Christians being hounded out of the public sphere for embracing and confessing what Christians have confessed down through the centuries. So make no mistake about it. Sex is just as much connected with idolatry today as it was for the Corinthians. And so I think it's very helpful to understand that the sex obsession in Paul's day and in our own is in fact a form of idolatry, a form of false worship. Uh, The second thing to notice about this list is the way that Paul writes about the vices that he mentions. Did you catch that? Paul doesn't actually list sins. He lists people who are defined by these sins. And so he doesn't mention sexual uh, immorality. He mentions the sexually immoral. He doesn't mention adultery. He mentions the adulteress. He doesn't mention um, theft. He mentions thieves and so on. What's the significance of this? I think he's communicating at least this, that sin is so very dangerous because it is not merely a matter of outward behavior. But rather, the issue of sin, the problem of sin, goes so deep, it goes right down to the roots of who we are. Sin is not merely a problem of behavior as if behavior modification could solve the issue. Sin is a matter of identity. It's a problem of who we are as children of Adam. And so Paul is telling us that while we believe and we tell ourselves You know, the reason that we pursue these things and live this way is we think these things will make us free and fulfill us and satisfy us. That in fact, the opposite is true. The sin that we love and pursue, in fact, in the end, actually enslaves us to the point where it dominates our lives and defines who we are. It comes to be a marker of our identity. It's not merely a problem of activity and behavior. It's a problem of identity. And so we are the sexually immoral. We are the adulterers, the idolaters, the homosexuals, the thieves, and so on. Which means we are much, much, much worse than we probably thought initially. Our sin problem goes all the way to the roots of who we are. 
And that is why the kingdom of God excludes people who are defined by their sin, who are enslaved by sin because sin is an identity problem. If you look again at verse 9, in the original Greek, there's a fascinating sentence structure, the way Paul writes it. it it's difficult to translate into English without sounding a bit like Yoda, right, who puts verbs in all kinds of strange places. But in the original Greek, the word unrighteous in, in verse 9 and the word theos, the word for God, are right next to each other, right alongside of each other. To, I think what Paul is doing, I think he's trying to highlight the utter incompatibility between the unrighteous on the one hand and God on the other hand. And so the word, literally, the verse literally translated reads something like, do you not know that the unrighteous, God's kingdom, will not inherit? The unrighteous and God are incompatible. Sin excludes us from the kingdom of God. See, Paul wants us to understand that if if we don't think we have a sin problem, if we think sin can be accommodated and indulged and pursued, the truth is we have an insurmountable God problem. We will be excluded from his kingdom. And that's the warning here. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's the sobering warning. But then there is this wonderful reminder in verse 11. So let's turn there now and Take a look at what Paul says right after this morning. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Their theological forgetfulness, you see, led them not only to forget the danger which indulging in sin exposed them to, it also led them to forget that the the radical change that the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ brings. Hear those words. Such were some of you. So that the, the sins that Paul listed once defined these believers. They were these things. It's not just that they did these things. This is who they were. They lived for these things. This was their way of life. And that's actually very much how our society thinks today. You know, one of the, one of the distinctive marks of our age, isn't it, is how people self-identify. Right? The importance of identity politics we could bring up here. Now, there's actually a kernel of truth there we could talk about, but the issue really is about identity. But as Paul is making clear here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's not the identity that we invent or discover for ourselves. The issue really here is the identity that is given to us either by the sin that enslaves us Or the gospel that sets us free and changes us. But the Corinthians, after receiving this new identity through the gospel, here's the problem, here's the contradiction. They continued to live the way they once did, 
instead of living as those who had been cleansed and set apart by God for God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Their sin continued to dominate the way that they thought about themselves instead of Jesus Christ filling their horizon. But you see, Paul is emphatic here. Such were some of you. When you became a Christian, he's saying, your dominating, enslaving sin no longer rules in your life. It no longer defines who you are. In fact, its mastery was broken and you have been set free and you are not who you once were. By the grace of God, you've been given a new identity. And so when you continue to define your life by your, your old life, by your old sin, well, several things are going on there. One, you're forgetting your new identity in Jesus Christ. Two, you're putting weapons in the hands of the enemy of your soul to use against you. When you continue to define yourself as a gay Christian, angry Christian, drunk Christian, add whatever qualifier you want, what what are you doing? You're making sin a qualifier of grace. Or you're saying, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian, but you continue to speak about your sin and identify with your sin in a way the Bible says you shouldn't any longer. And Paul's saying that's a lie. And he's calling Christians to avoid it. Because in Christ, you are not who you once were. What's Paul say elsewhere? In Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone The new has come. You are not who you were. And so, dear believer, it's time to start living in the light of your new identity in Christ. You know, sometimes when we struggle to to shake off our past, um, there could be a lot of reasons behind it. But I suspect that one of the main reasons that some of us struggle to shake off our old life is because we've got some faulty thinking when it comes to our conversion. Sometimes we think that we chose Christ. Right? That we are the ones who initiated it. That we made the decision and the commitment. But well, please notice that when Paul speaks here, he doesn't say that uh, when you came to Christ... You washed yourself. You were, you sanctified yourself. You justified yourself. Paul doesn't say that, does he? Now, if he did say that, I suppose it would be understandable that every single day when we wake up, the jury would be out whether we're going to turn back to our old life of sin or turn to Christ and continue to follow after him because the decision really is all up to us. But my friends, that's not how the gospel works, is it? The truth is, in Paul's words, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. God, in his sovereign grace, broke into the midst of your slavery to sin, and he set you free. He washed you clean through the 
blood of Jesus Christ. And he set you apart. He made you a saint. A holy one set apart, consecrated for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he justified you. He counted you righteous in his sight through faith alone in Christ. He did it once for all, Paul is saying. You see, the verb tenses here are incredibly important for us to understand. They mean that each of these things happened at a definitive point once and for all. It was settled in the past and it wasn't something we did to ourselves. It's something that has been done to us. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart and consecrated by God to a holy life. You were justified. Your sin was pardoned. And your filthy garments were removed. And you were clothed in the righteous robes of God's obedient son. That, Paul is saying, that's who you are if you are a Christian. That is your true, deepest, most real identity. Washed, sanctified, justified. Now that's helpful for a number of reasons, but let me just mention two this morning. First of all, it's helpful, isn't it? Because it tells us that God can save a wretch like me. Maybe, maybe some of you here this morning wonder if, if your sin excludes you from the possibility of ever receiving the welcome of Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you're saying in your heart and you don't want to say it out loud. You know, Pastor Jared, what you're saying is all well and good, but you don't know the life I've lived. You don't know the dark things I've done. You don't, you don't know how I've hurt other people, how I've harmed myself, how I've just lived a life of slavery and bondage to my own depraved desires. Jesus would never, ever welcome the likes of me. All I want to say to you this morning is please, please hear the words of the Apostle Paul here. Such were some of you. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, swindlers. Dear friends, the church of Corinth was full of them. Trinity is full of them. The kingdom of God is full of them. And don't misunderstand me. There will be no idolaters or adulterers and so on in heaven. But it will be full of people who once were. Who once were. There is hope for the likes of you and me in Jesus Christ. I hope you understand that the God who reveals himself in scripture has revealed himself as one who loves and takes delight in taking guilty, enslaved sinners and making them clean and setting them free. He loves to wash dirty, filthy sinners clean with the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And so my invitation to you is to, today is come, come to Jesus dirty. Come, come to him with all of your shame, with all of your sin, and let him take care of it all. He will wash you clean so that though you feel filthy, he will in fact objectively before God make you clean. And he will set you apart. He will make you a saint. One who is consecrated in service to the Lord. He will robe you in his own perfect righteousness. So that when the Father looks upon you, what he sees is not your filthy garments of sin, but the bright, shining radiance of the obedience of his one and only Son. And so come, guilty and defiled, and find the open, free, welcome of Jesus Christ that the gospel offers to us all. Now, the second reason that I think this is so helpful to come to terms with what Paul is saying here. It's especially helpful for believers who feel that who they once were is who they are destined to always be. I wonder, are you a pessimist when it comes to the possibility of change? One of those individuals who thinks, yeah, this is... This is all nice, but you know what? People never really change. They always stay the same. Change isn't possible. Um, I wonder if you feel that way, that the sin that has tripped you up and defined you throughout your life is always just going to be there to trip you up and define you. This passage says it is not so. Because the gospel says it isn't so. Instead, it declares to us that Jesus will not only forgive you, he can and he will change you. Yes, there is an irreconcilable war during this life. There will always be a struggle with sin in this life. But rest assured that Jesus, by his spirit, he can and he will make you like himself. And he will not quit the work that he has begun. And so in Jesus there is hope for real and true and lasting freedom from the sin that enslaved us. That defined us. That dominated our lives. Because in Jesus Christ we are given a completely new identity. And we have a completely new relationship to the sin that once governed our lives. And so let's turn this morning, every single one of us, from the wretched filth of our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he and he alone can wash us clean. He alone can sanctify us and set us apart for himself. And he alone can justify us before God. And so may each and every one of us find our identity in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we confess how we sometimes have allowed besetting sin to define us. We can see uh, all of the failure in our lives and, and sometimes be tempted to wonder if any change is ever really going to take place. We thank you this morning 
that Jesus Christ is precisely the Savior we need for our pardon and for our renewal. And that in him we are set apart for you, called to live as saints in this world. Would you please deepen our understanding and our appreciation for what it means that we are in Christ Jesus. That we are his And he is ours and we are one with him. Lord, we pray this morning for those who do not know Christ, who are here. And we pray that they would have their eyes open to see the sinfulness of their sin. To see that their problem really deep down is the problem of sin. And that you alone are the answer to that great problem and need. Show them the grace of Christ. Open their ears to hear the welcome of Jesus Christ to come to him to be cleansed, to be set apart, to be justified. Do this, we ask, for the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.